You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon and welcome to the United States Institute of Peace for the launch of this important report, China and Reshaping of Global Conflict Prevention Norms. My name is Rosie Levine. I am a senior program analyst for China at USIP. For those of you who are not familiar with the United States Institute of Peace or USIP, we, are, we were established by the US Congress in 1984 as a national nonpartisan public institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. Over the course of the last decade, the People's Republic of China has shown an increased interest in playing a role in conflict prevention and global security. This ambition is being pursued through a variety of avenues, from funding streams for UN projects, to promoting its own security norms through regional organizations and providing security assistance to countries in the global south. In the past year alone, we have seen China put forward a position paper on the political sentiment, um, sorry, political settlement of Russia's war in Ukraine, host talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran that resulted in the resumption of bilateral diplomatic relations, and published the Global Security Initiative concept paper, which seeks to define China's own conception of security in a way that differs from the United States and the West. As we look upon these events and others, many are seeking to understand what did these events tell us about how China approaches international security and what characterizes China's approach? These are the exact questions that this timely report sets out to answer. Um, today, I'm pleased to welcome this expert group of panelists who each bring a wealth of knowledge to discuss the findings of the report, China and the reshaping of global conflict prevention norms. Uh, there are hard copies in the back if you haven't grabbed one and it's available online for those tuning in online. Um, we are extremely grateful to have our panelists with us um, and thank you all to who are joining in person and online today. I will now turn it over to Susan Lawrence, Specialist in Asian Affairs at the Congressional Research Service, who will moderate today's discussion and introduce the panelists. We look forward to hearing your thoughts and thank you all for attending. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, well, thank you very much, Rosie. Um, I am delighted to be able to moderate this panel today. Uh, and as Rosie is mentioning, this report is incredibly well-timed. Uh, we had two developments yesterday, <laughs> which uh, fit very neatly with this report. Uh, one, we had Secretary of State Blinken uh, gave a speech in which he referred again to the People's Republic of China as posing the most significant long-term challenge to the United States. Um, because it not only aspires to reshape the international order, it increasingly has the economic, diplomatic, the military, the technological power to do just that. So again, it's this very central characterization of China that the United States, that the Biden administration has put forward, but it's this idea of China as a revisionist power that aspires to reshape the international order. So um, Secretary Blinken's speech yesterday went into those issues in, in much greater length, but it seemed a very, very good setup in some ways for your report. Um, also, yesterday, China released its proposal of the PRC on the reform and development of global governance. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to later on hear your views on how your report um, might shed light on that, that proposal for reform and development of global governance. Um, but we are now going to turn to our panelists um, to 
who are all co-authors of this wonderful new report. Uh, so we have uh, Carla Freeman, who is um, senior expert for the China program here at the US Institute of Peace, um, formerly with the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And Ali McFarland, who is a program specialist for research here at the US Institute of Peace, um, has got some wonderful experience uh, in China and elsewhere. Uh, and we have Bates Gill, who is the executive director of the Center for China Analysis, uh, which is part of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Uh, and that's where he's leading a team of research fellows um, and staff to develop, deliver on the center's aim to be a global leader for policy relevant objective analysis of China's politics, economy, and society, and its impact on Asia and the world. And Bates has had a long career working on the issues that are in this report uh, in many different incarnations in many countries around the world. Uh, so I'm going to turn it over to all of you. Thank you so much. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and, and thanks so much, Rosie and Susan, for the introduction. And uh, before I start my brief comments, I just want to thank all of the USIP colleagues who've been involved in organizing this event. Uh, it, uh, it, it takes uh, quite a few to put uh, uh, even a small event together, and I'm very grateful. Also want to thank uh, the uh, extraordinary publications team here at USIP who, who has helped us produce a report. We can be proud of. It's really uh, pretty as well. Uh, we did our best on the research side, but uh, very grateful to them. And I want to thank Bates and Ali uh, for being such great partners in the project. We've had a wonderful time working together. Uh, and uh, that will, that's continuing with some new research focused on the Global Security Initiative, which we can, we can, we can discuss. Uh, also, thanks to all the reviewers and the report. They're listed. Some of them are listed, but many people here at USIP also helped uh, provide great feedback. And of course, thanks to all of you in the audience. Uh, we're looking forward to your comments and questions. This is our first, this is our rollout, the first time we've shared this, this uh, research. Um, as uh, Rosie and, uh, and uh, Susan both uh, uh, alluded to, uh, we decided to conduct research on this particular topic of China's impact on international conflict prevention here at USIP because we're at a moment of intensifying change in international relations. Uh, what we're calling a post-Afghanistan era, but I'm sure that there will be other other labels for this uh, this era. Biden, President Biden, likes to talk about it as an inflection point, uh, and of course the Chinese uh, talk about changes unseen in a century. Uh, but we're clearly in a period when the risks where the risks of conflict are on the rise, uh, with great power uh, competition intensifying. You know, not least between the United States and China. This raises a lot of questions about the role of the world's uh, major powers in conflict prevention. In addition, as we explore in this report, uh, especially in the last uh, decade and a half, uh, and more, most obviously since Xi Jinping became uh, China's top leader, uh, China has demonstrated a growing interest in exercising its increasing uh, global influence uh, to play a bigger role in international security. Uh, this includes playing a bigger role in conflict prevention around the world. So we, want to under we wanted to understand what this meant, uh, including how China's approach might differ from uh, existing uh, more established norms and practices in the area of conflict prevention. 
Uh, so to get our discussion going today, uh, let me highlight uh, four of our principal findings uh, that are, as I'll mention, tied to some of the questions that drove our research. Uh, first, uh, in answer to the question, how is China approaching conflict prevention? What we find is that China has been uh, associated with the idea of, of developmental peace. And, uh, and I think uh, that's the idea that economic development is the most critical uh, pathway or the, the foundation for uh, achieving stability and preventing uh, conflict. What we find is that China's approach to conflict uh, prevention is becoming securitized. It's moving away from this developmental peace paradigm. And we can discuss this further in the Q&A, but I think what we find is that this shift is very much in line with the heavier emphasis on security in China's approach to domestic policy, whereby uh, security is seen as a prerequisite to development or else there's a discussion about uh, the integration of uh, security and development uh, in, uh, in Chinese framings. As I think uh, Bates might discuss in more detail, we see this shift uh, at the global level in China's United Nations engagements and at the regional level in China's regional interactions and also in uh, China's bilateral um, interactions on, in uh, the area of conflict prevention. And we have a case study on the Solomons, which uh, illustrates that. Second, in terms of our second question about how China's approach uh, appears to differ from existing conflict prevention norms and frameworks, uh, beyond the continued importance that China assigns to development uh, and poverty alleviation in uh, st stability and in preventing conflict, we find that what China emphasizes in conflict prevention is quite different from some of the prevailing thinking about conflict prevention uh, that's prominent uh, at the United Nations. So we take a look at how China's conflict, conflict prevention preferences compare to uh, conflict prevention practices around the world uh, that were around which there are, uh, are, appears to be at least general uh, consensus. We have to acknowledge that there is in fact no single recipe for conflict prevention. And in fact, the term conflict prevention is heavily debated. Uh, but that said, there is an extensive body of shared understanding gleaned from decades of system, systematic effort at conflict prevention around the world uh, that we can use as a reference point uh, to locate Chinese uh, practices. And uh, so we, we draw on a couple of frameworks. One is the conflict prevention curve uh, that is associated with Michael Lund, and there's a beautiful illustration of that on page five of the report. Uh, I won't go into the curve itself, but um, on the left side of the curve is um, peace and conflict, uh, peace promotion, conflict prevention activities uh, at the height of the curve is sort of where you are dealing with the conflict itself. And then on the right side is the post-conflict peace, peace building activities. Uh, and uh, we may reference this, uh, I think in Ali's remarks, she may reference the curve. We also reference thinking about conflict prevention that divides it into three levels. Uh, there is the systemic level, which is focused on the role of global and regional uh, multilateral institutions in conflict prevention. Uh, then there's the structural uh, element uh, focused on sort of deep prevention activities, including uh, under uh, trying to eliminate the underlying sources of conflict, uh, for example, um, uh, you know, strengthening human rights, uh, uh, building accountable governments, uh, 
fostering a, a more robust civil society and also promoting inclusive and sustainable development. Those are all factors in this structural approach to conflict prevention. And then a third uh, operational uh, emphasis on conflict prevention through activities like preventive diplomacy, peacekeeping, confidence building measures, uh, and the preventive deployment of police uh, and other armed forces, but with an emphasis in all of these operational activities on inclusiveness, transparency, and accountability, and that's a really important, uh, those, are, th those uh, principles are important uh, elements of, of, of the sort of best practices in, in using these approaches to um, conflict prevention. So I'll let my colleague Ali provide more detail about how all of these frameworks, including the conflict curve and these three levels of uh, framings, relate to China's uh, specific approaches to conflict pre prevention. But uh, just to say, we observe from our research that uh, China's approach to uh, conflict prevention reflects uh, China's own longstanding preferences for non-interference a preference for government-to-government, state-to-state engagement over interaction with community organizations, civil society, opposition forces. These are norms that align with China's own preferences for a strong state uh, and, and domestic stability and security. Uh, and then also an operational emphasis on preventive security measures, proactive preventive security measures. Again, I think Ali will give you um, some, uh, illustrate some of those points. Um, third, in, in response to our question that we posed to ourselves about where we should be looking uh, to better understand uh, China's um, approach to conflict prevention, we, we find that China's efforts at conflict prevention are largely concentrated along China's periphery, perhaps not surprisingly, and also where it has other significant economic and political stakes in the global south. And I think, again, we'll hear from Bates on some of the illustrative cases that we identified. And then finally, uh, in response to a fourth question that we ask about how China's approach to conflict prevention might affect multilateral security institutions, we do find that China is seeking to promote and win legitimacy for its preferred norms internationally through the United Nations and through what we call sinocentric multilateral uh, groupings or in, insti multilateral institutions. These are, institu in, these are groupings where China plays a leading role. So uh, before I, I yield the floor to Ali, let me just sum up by saying in short, uh, we find that China is playing a, um, a, is pursuing a more proactive role in international conflict prevention alongside an overall uh, push to shape the norms of international security. And this creates uh, both potential opportunities as well as challenges for US policy. Great, uh, thanks so much, Carla. Um, I'll begin by echoing my thanks as well to everyone at USIP who helped uh, produce this report and put on the event. Um, so as Carla mentioned, I'm gonna be providing some details about where China differs and how we use our lens um, before moving on to Bates for our findings in the case studies. So I wanted to start by addressing the question of terminology. So as Carla mentioned, uh, the term conflict prevention is debated and we use it in this report and found sort of the relevant frameworks useful for our analysis. But it's important to note that the PRC officials and scholars will often avoid using this term um, because it can be associated in their eyes with Western intervention and in particular military intervention. So instead, China will prefer other terms, for example, in expert circles, there can be a preference for preventive diplomacy instead. And then in official discourse, 
Some PRC activities that could be described as conflict prevention will instead fall under different labels, such as promoting regional stability and security. And as some other scholars have noted, official discourse will even use alternative terms for conflict areas, such as describing them as hotspots or hotspot issues. That said, Chinese officials have used the term in certain contexts, for example, in UN discussions that are explicitly about conflict prevention. And Chinese officials will also emphasize this term prevention in other contexts, such as in crisis prevention between the US and China as preferable to crisis management. That being said, um, it can still be useful to look at China's activities through the lens of conflict prevention, and in particular, the framework that Carla had mentioned of systemic, structural, and operational. So at the systemic level, um, China, uh, Chinese officials and experts have generally seen the United Nations as occupying a particularly critical position in conflict prevention and sort of described the UN as being the most universal, representative, authoritative, intergovernmental, international organization. And there is considerable consensus among both Chinese officials and scholarly communities that it is important to adhere to UN principles of sovereignty and non-interference with the will and consent of all conflict parties, and especially the sitting government being respected. But how China interprets these principles can differ from how other UN member states do. So for example, looking at sovereignty and the responsibility to protect, um, R2P promoted a more flexible understanding of sovereignty that is based on the responsibility of a state's government to protect its people. And there has been some recognition of a more limited sovereignty by Chinese officials and experts, but overall the PRC has emphasized a more status approach to R2P that focuses on strengthening prevention by building a state's capacity to protect its citizens rather than on instances where a government is unwilling or unable to act. And in addition to express support for the UN's role in conflict prevention, China has also supported regional organizations and peace and security processes, and Beijing has prioritized regional entities where it exerts significant influence. And this includes the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the China-Africa Peace and Security Forum, among others. And then looking at the structural level, as Carla already mentioned, there's an emphasized thinking on linking conflict prevention to economic development, with experts and officials sort of making the argument that by focusing on economic development, they can tackle the root causes of conflict. Um, and then with its own activities, official statements will explicitly highlight connections between China's major development initiatives, most notably the Belt and Road Initiative and conflict mitigation. So for example, Xi Jinping in 2017 stated that we should build the Belt and Road into a road for peace. An official Chinese discourse has also linked the BRI to China's role in preventive diplomacy involving uh, various multilateral organizations, including the UN, the Arab League, and the African Union. That said, again, as Carla noted, uh, there has been a growing emphasis on security as being fundamental to both development and peace. And so this shift in, in Chinese foreign policy extends to global conflict prevention norms and is seen through actions such as the Global Security Initiative, which Beijing, Beijing has promoted as another public good from China and bringing Chinese solutions and wisdom for solving security challenges facing humanity. But importantly, whether emphasizing development or security, PRC structural approaches to conflict prevention tend to favor the prerogatives of existing governments, including when these preferences run counter to other concerns related to accountability, transparency, social inclusion, etc. And then lastly, looking at the operational level, today China has expanded its operational 
role in conflict prevention through both multilateral organizations and bilateral activities. And so these include activities such as the provision of mediation services, military assistance, and arms sales, as well as counterterrorism programs and law enforcement training. And I'll stop there and turn it over to Paige. Take the decision about uh, which proposals to fund. In the study uh, you have before you, we've listed a number of um, uh, examples of where that funding has gone, uh, and, and um, to give you some better sense of the priorities uh, that we can see coming through for the funding in support of these various uh, activities in relation to peace and security. Um, I won't go into the details there and, 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 and encourage you to have a look, but we have sort of a four principal takeaways on this particular case study. First of all, I think it's important to see this effort within the larger context of China's ongoing effort to have a greater voice, obviously within the UN system generally, but also increasingly, especially with regard to security affairs. So steering funding towards activities obviously helps China build up a uh, image within the United Nations as a responsible player, especially around security affairs. And we have to assume uh, that uh, it is uh, through that committee that I mentioned um, keen to make sure that the uh, activities that are funded uh, would be, you know, in alignment, in general alignment with, with China's interests and approaches towards conflict prevention. Secondly, another notable aspect of this peace and security uh, uh, fund is that much of it goes to UN training and capacity building activities through uh, particularly three important uh, organizations within the United Nations, the Department of Peace Operations, the Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs, and the Executive Office of the Secretary General. Uh, and those three parts of the United Nations system uh, received some 60%, uh, received funding for some 60% of all the projects that were funded um, under this fund. Third, the African region is explicitly noted as a area of focus uh, for this funding. And then lastly, we note that um, the work of this fund reflects China's ongoing strong interest in countering terrorism and in countering certain criminal activities related to terrorism, uh, such as uh, terrorist financing, especially, again, in Africa. Now, um, you know, there are some, I would say, vulnerabilities to some of this research because, as I said, uh, there is not uh, significant amounts of open source information about this fund. Um, and of course, we have to make the assumption that UN entities have their own agency. It's not as if China's telling them uh, what to do. And of course, at the end of the day, it's very difficult to draw a causality uh, between what may be China's uh, preferences on conflict prevention uh, and what the outcomes of these various activities funded are. But we nevertheless think it's significant to note these activities, little known to most persons that China is undertaking in relation to this fund, it shows a significant and ongoing investment by China to engage with the, U with the UN system and to become a more influential actor in regional security affairs, especially in relation to the issues we're following, conflict prevention, preventive diplomacy, peacekeeping, and mediation. The second major case study, we wanted to look at how China's <clears throat> trying to promote uh, its version of conflict prevention norms and activities through what we've termed uh, you know, sinocentric multilateral groupings or, uh, or mechanisms. And in particular, 
uh, in this case study, we focused on two uh, organizations. One, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and the other, the Conference on Interaction and Confidence Building Measures in Asia, uh, often abbreviated as CICA. Um, these are two intergovernmental organizations within Central Asia primarily uh, that are prioritizing regional security. Um, interestingly, uh, in this case study, we find a great deal of work being done by China, particularly at the um, at the operational level of, of promoting uh, conflict prevention. Um, it also is helpful in sort of socializing and promoting uh, China's normative approach to conflict uh, prevention, which we go into detail, um, using these organizations then to amplify uh, and sort of socialize and um, rationalize and justify China's approach to conflict prevention. In particular, we provide a great deal of detail as to the financial and technical support for the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in relation to conflict prevention activities. Maybe first and foremost above of this is the significant support that China has provided over the years to the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization's regional anti-terrorist structure or, or RATS. Um, um, we know that th this organization is dedicated to um, trying to prevent uh, you know, terrorism, extremism, and so forth. Um, but it is almost, uh, uh, without saying, also intended to try and prevent the emergence of so-called color revolutions within uh, the states of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and particularly those within uh, Central Asia itself. Indeed, um, one of our interlocutors in preparing this report made the comment uh, that for China, conflict prevention is actually color revolution prevention. And so we see at the operational level uh, offers by China, uh, for example, uh, to support the training of some 2,000 law enforcement personnel from uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization member states to create a China SCO training base for counterterrorism uh, personnel and is encouraging the harmonization of legislation across SCO member states to better confront the emergence of potential security challenges within them, uh, including a promise to assist in setting up a training center for judicial exchanges among SCO members. At the May uh, 2023 China Central Asia Summit, uh, Xi Jinping said that China is ready to help Central Asian countries improve their law enforcement, security, and defense capability construction and has offered up uh, loans to enable Central Asian states to acquire security technology. Uh, so, for example, Chinese facial recognition and artificial intelligence software and other, other technologies. So it's a, it's a clear example, especially with the, through the SCO, of China attempting to uh, normalize, socialize, uh, and, and strengthen its approach to conflict prevention through the activities of these Sinocentric um, uh, regional organizations. And the SCO is not the only example where we see these types of activities, but we focused on it in particular. Finally, thirdly, we looked at the case study of China-Solomon Islands uh, cooperation. And in particular, we focused on the um, important agreement which China and Solomon Islands reached 
apparently in early 2022, in which, among a number of other offers of cooperation, uh, China agreed to provide security assistance uh, to Solomon Islands under certain circumstances. And let me just read the key clause of that document. Solomon Islands may, according to its own needs, request China to send police, armed police, military personnel, and other law enforcement and other armed forces to Solomon Islands to assist in maintaining social order, protecting people's lives and property, providing humanitarian assistance, carrying out disaster response, or providing assistance on other tasks as agreed to by the parties. China may, according to its own needs and with the consent of Solomon Islands, make ship visits to carry out logistical replenishment in and have stopover and transition in Solomon Islands and the relevant forces of China can be used to protect the safety of Chinese personnel and major projects in Solomon Islands. It's a remarkable uh, statement uh, between these two countries and I think may be among the first, if not the only, such uh, agreement, possibly with the exception of China's relations with North Korea, um, uh, in, a, in a formal agreement uh, to uh, provide armed force uh, outside of China. In practice, this has worked out to be primarily the provision of a small team of Chinese police who are now more or less permanently stationed uh, in, in Solomon Islands, known as the Chinese Police Liaison Team, uh, which is, uh, serves as a, a liaison um, function to help promote cooperation between China and Solomon Islands in the form of police training, uh, the provision of technologies, and the like. This cooperation is ongoing, uh, and as I said, includes in-country work, provides training and equipment and help uh, to bring capacity building uh, for the Royal Solomon Islands police force. There have been multiple exchanges of police officers from Solomon Islands to China, Chinese uh, police officers to the Solomon Islands uh, uh, to provide training, uh, to set up uh, a forensic autopsy laboratory, um, to connect the Royal Solomon uh, Police Force to Interpol, to, to Interpol uh, systems and, and, and introduce um, uh, digital communication systems and the like. Uh, the best data that we have on this is that up to the end of late 2022, um, this level of assistance was estimated to be around $5 million, so still relatively small, but ongoing and on-the-ground activities nonetheless. So these are the three case studies that we uh, looked at, and I think um, you know the findings there are very much consistent with the sorts of findings which Carla uh, uh, and, and, and Ali have already outlined. Looking at that conflict curve, uh, what we see then is a great deal more investment than we may have seen in the past on the on the left side of that conflict curve uh, to try and prevent uh, the emergence of conflict within these societies, but with certain Chinese characteristics, and that is uh, by you know strengthening state capacity to suppress the possibility of opposition forces or disgruntlement and the like within societies uh, to the exclusion of that more open, accountable, uh, inclusive approach, which is often of engaging with uh, elements of, of civil society as a means to prevent conflict uh, from emerging. But I'll stop there and look forward to our discussion. Thank you.
Thanks very much, um, Bates and, and Ali and Carla. Um, really enjoyed this report. Uh, I was struck um, first that you've done everybody a great service because China has been pumping out policy document after policy document, proposal after proposal um, for all sorts of initiatives. We had the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, Global Civilization Initiative. Um, these often have kind of catchy names, but the details of these proposals can be really quite opaque. Uh, it can be really hard to work your way through some of those documents and understand exactly what China's trying to do. Uh, and I think you've done everybody a service by unpicking um, some of those documents and unpicking what China's been doing and trying to, to present it in a, in a more accessible fashion um, with some great analysis. Um, the conflict curve I also found a really helpful addition to the report uh, and your, your point about China putting, it sounds like a lot of new energy into the left side of the curve, which is um, peacetime diplomacy or politics, preventive diplomacy, crisis diplomacy, peacemaking, um, versus the right side of the curve, which is peace enforcement, peacekeeping, post-conflict, peace-building. Peace um, that said, of course, China has got a lot going on in the peacekeeping space and has always, um, that's been quite high profile, it's something they've been very committed to, they've put a lot of money into it, um, and so I, I, I just felt like maybe it would be useful to just a flag that that's still a major commitment um, for the PRC on the, the peacekeeping side. Um, I liked just the whole report is a very good reminder that the PRC has this very status approach. Um, you say that they, they favor the prerogatives of existing governments and you talk about how the Chinese approach doesn't tend to, to prioritize um, reaching out to other stakeholders, including opposition groups. And of course, this becomes a challenge when you do have governments that we have countries where a government may fall and a opposition group may come to power. And if China's invested a whole lot of time and energy with the existing government, that, that creates challenges for uh, China's efforts going forward. And I, I don't know whether they've, I don't know whether the, the documents, whether the work that you've been looking at kind of grapples at all with that challenge. Um, also, um, great case studies. Uh, the UN Trust Fund details were fantastic. Um, I, uh, I appreciated that you had highlighted that China had initially promised that $1 billion to the UN Trust Fund and then actually ended up delivering $200 million. The details of how it operates, um, very helpful. Uh, with the SEO and the RATS, <laughs> um, um, well, SEO, RATS being the Regional Anti-Terrorist Structure, um, fantastic acronym, uh, and the kicker, um, that piece uh, was very striking in talking about the degree to which China is training police and counterterrorism personnel. The challenge is how we assess the effectiveness of that training. I mean, what is the impact of that training? And I, that's just so hard to get at. And I don't know if you've had any ideas about how one might get at that question, because this is that, that issue of um, when you're looking at evaluating projects, you know, there are those, those indicators, which is sort of basically counting numbers, how many trainings offered, how many people trained, versus the qualitative, um, the outcome indicator on 
what's the outcome of all that? Uh, and I know that there's some work, I know Maria Retnikova has done work like that, um, looking at the effectiveness of PRC media training, but I, I don't know if we have, and if there's any work out there looking at the effectiveness of those efforts to train police forces and other kind of security personnel. Uh, and the Solomon Islands piece is also fascinating. Uh, and I hadn't realized that, yeah, that I, that this is the perhaps only agreement to provide armed forces outside China. It, it seems kind of quite different from, I mean, what they're doing in the Solomon Islands, you talk about it as perhaps kind of a pilot or an idea of, of where China might be going. Um, but I, I'm very struck at, at how different that seems from some of the things that China has done before. Um, the report talks a lot about the coherence of sort of the way China talks about these things, but you also do highlight some of the contradictions in the way that China is going about its approach to conflict uh, prevention or management. Um, you, particularly the one that seems to just sort of leap out, of course, is the Russian war in Ukraine. And you, you note that China says that it has this kind of rhetorical commitment to sovereignty and to Ukraine's sovereignty, and yet it doesn't condemn Moscow's invasion and deepening ties with Russia. So, and it's keeping its ties with Russia. So it seems like within that coherence, um, I guess it calls into question how coherent the whole thing is when you have such a big outlier like that. Um, the, uh, questions for you, I guess, a couple of questions. So one, you have a recommendations in your section of recommendations for the US. You say that China's initiatives have aspects that are assessed as beneficial by many countries around the world, including some US allies and partners. You then recommend that Washington should respond to China's activities with policies that deflect unwelcome elements, but also identify opportunities to engage with constructive PRC contributions. So that sort of begs the question, what do you see as the constructive elements of China's approach. What are China's constructive contributions? Um, that's one question, and I have a, a follow-up, but maybe we'll, we'll start with that one. Um, I'm, I'm actually not going to turn this over to you, Bates, but I do want to say to the audience that we would love to have your comments and questions. I know looking at the audience, there's some uh, leading experts on this topic here, and uh, we had planned for you to write your questions on note cards, so I don't know if you you have any of those uh, yet, and if you have questions, and then we'll collect all of them. I think the note cards are there, uh, but if that's not an efficient enough process, we can also just use the microphone that, that Bates has in his hand, but uh, Bates, maybe I'll let you start with the, an answer to this question, and I'll, I'll probably make some comments as well. Well, I mean, I think um, you know, we point for example, to the work of this uh, peace and security sub-fund in the United Nations, um, you know, this is pro providing, I think, you know, legitimate and um, useful capacity building to, you know, such agencies as, you know, the uh, Office of uh, uh, um, the, you know, on Terrorism and, and, and Crime, um, obviously peace-building activities, uh, strengthening the capacity of, of those blue helmet forces and so on. Um, I would think that could be a relatively um, neutral area where uh, the U.S. and China could come to some common ground about, you know, um, supporting those sorts of activities with, under the auspices 
of the United Nations, and presumably already, of course, the United States is doing a lot of that. But you, know, you could certainly try to find some common ground there. Um, looking at other uh, areas of activity, um, you know, I think there's, a, there's an effort underway now to, to do more in the way of trying to limit the, uh, the spread of small arms and light weapons in areas of conflict. Uh, it strikes me that that would be an obvious potential area of the United States and China to be doing more as a, as a, as a kind of approach to conflict conflict prevention. But there, there may well be many, many others. Uh, I guess we just had in mind that there, you know, we, we didn't want to make the case that everything China was up to was necessarily malign, um, but that we should be at least aware fundamentally of the different normative approach and different sort of principles that China is bringing to the table in many of the ways that it wants to uh, promote conflict prevention. Yeah, I guess I would yeah, agree with Bates. I can't say I have much more to add, but yeah, I would just say that we wanted to highlight that when dealing with sort of countries, particularly those in the global south, I think having this um, narrative that is entirely pitting um, China in the negative can be very difficult for the U.S. Uh, to come in. And then while we need to sort of present our own um, sort of solutions where appropriate, that many states do sort of need help with capacity building. Um, and sort of if there's a way that we can work or sort of provide areas of convergence to have this capacity building, then that would be beneficial for sort of both the U.S. interests within the state, within um, states within the Global South, as well as sort of what the Global South is looking for. I think generally speaking, just as with the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, these and the, the, uh, this, uh, this effort by China and the Global Security Initiative really does shine light on areas where the United States needs to make bigger investments around the world. And I think you know, that's a big takeaway. We've also seen China play a constructive role in, uh, in what could be considered preventive diplomacy, say, for example, in the, uh, the Iran-Saudi uh, deal there, and uh, also in efforts to, uh, to you know, mitigate conflict in the Great Lakes uh, region of East Africa and so on. Uh, so there are spaces where China is uh, a trusted partner of many of these countries and where uh, their efforts uh, are, are, should be recognized and valued. I mean, in, in conversations with some Chinese uh, experts, even about the Iran-Saudi deal, they will uh, uh, highlight the importance that the Abraham Accords uh, played in the ability for that deal to be uh, to be uh, done. So uh, that would be a case of, of indirect, uh, you know, a, a, a process that involves uh, two major powers uh, improving uh, peace and security in a, in, uh, in a region. And just a, a quick question for me, and then we should go to the audience. But um, I wondered about the, the policy actors within China um, involved in these initiatives. So we're, you're talking about how China's approach has moved more it's moved away from development being central to development and security being at least equal and maybe security first. So are we seeing much greater involvement from the Ministry of Public Security, the Ministry of State Security, you know, those kinds of, we just saw the Ministry of State Security weighing in on um, the issue of US-China relations, which was a kind of unusual thing to see the Ministry of State Security doing. Uh, so are we seeing them becoming much bigger actors globally and, and also the party? Um, and I was struck 
Um, I just was thinking that uh, you talked about how in the Solomon Islands, one of the motivations perhaps for China's activities there is this desire to protect ethnic Chinese uh, in the Solomon Islands. That idea of protection of overseas Chinese or just sort of engagement with overseas Chinese has been an integral part of China's, the Communist Party's United Front Work Department. And the party holds up uh, the China's evacuation of civilians from, from Libya in 2011 as an example of um, a strong United Front activity that they undertook. So is the United Front part of any of these um, initiatives? Is it part of what's, what's happening in the Solomon Islands? Um, anyway, but policy actors on the PRC side. Well, just, just quickly, uh, to your point about the Ministry of State Security and, and Ministry of Public Security, Definitely, uh, those two actors are more significant, particularly on the operational side. We see a much bigger role for the, min uh, the Ministry of Public Security. Uh, in, uh, this is true uh, with respect to uh, China's relations with Central Asia. And also, we mentioned uh, the, uh, the Global Security Initiative, uh, that there is a pilot project uh, that will be, uh, at least is proposed within the Lansong Mekong Cooperation uh, it looks like the lead actor there on some of the activities, at least, is the Ministry of Public Security. Uh, so um, I think I'll let Bates respond on the Solomon case because he really took the lead in, in that. That's certainly the uh, uh, Ministry of Public Security. Um, I think you know the training, for example, is being done, I think, by the uh, Fujian Province uh, Public Security uh, Bureau. So they're, they're playing a very, very big role there. Um, and, you know, I... I I liken it a little bit to the um, the whole uh, you know gray hull, white hull, um, you know gray zone um, differentiation uh, that we see in places like the South China Sea. I mean, it's obviously much less controversial uh, to have members of the Ministry of Public Security, you know, police force, uh, making this first foray rather than sending the green uniformed PLA. Um, into these into these situations, so I think it's a it's a kind of a testing testing of the waters in a way. So we do see an expansion of the Ministry of Public Security and its related entities, you know, in terms of the tech, you know, technology and surveillance and and other um, support services uh, for the police. So uh, that they're playing a much much bigger role. Ministry of State Security, you see them playing a big role too. I've not seen um, any overt. Uh, evidence of that, but um, being primarily, I think, concerned with internal Chinese internal security. But, you know, no doubt uh, elements of internal states repression um, and, and um, maybe technologies and, and tactics in that regard may well be finding their way, you know, out into these uh, efforts at conflict prevention that China is engaging with other, with other, with other countries. Do we have um, questions from the audience? Um, I think we, we had some yes, cards go around. Uh, we have a question. Uh, Adam Fields, uh, Department of State. I just returned from uh, uh, Beijing, actually, a, a foreign service tour. This is a very timely and interesting conversation. Um, I'm wondering if I can, just two questions. Um, in your research, uh, if you were able to sort of pick up on anything uh, regarding what I think is a really underappreciated component of the topic you're discussing, and that's the announcement, I think it was late last year, that the PRC wanted to organize an international organization for mediation 
uh, I think, in Hong Kong. And uh, there's very little information about that organization. However, my understanding is, unlike GSI or GDI or GCI, which are more slogans, this will actually have a secretariat uh, with rules for new members, which is much more institutionalized than, say, even BRI. Uh, and uh, if there's any uh, info you have on that, it would be very interesting. And, and then the second, in, in your research, um, a lot of the people I spoke with over the last three years uh, on, on this topic, uh, and I can't quantify this, but they linked the rise in sort of Xi Jinping's domestic security-focused slogans like comprehensive national security, his emphasis on political security, um, bottom-line thinking, with, the, uh, with a sort of a corresponding outward push uh, 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 particularly along the BRI to focus more on security and a lot of them sort of reasoned that this was a just a sort of natural manifestation of what she's domestic priorities were uh, sort of spreading out not intentionally per se but uh, that everybody along in the PRC system had to think about these slogans and incorporate those into their work even if they were working on a you know hydropower project in uh, an African country and if, if during your research, if you found any of those sort of links, particularly quantitative uh, data uh, on the domestic linking with the with the, with the global, it'd be interesting. Thanks. Uh, and maybe uh, given that our time is short, we might take one more question. I think there was a question in the in the far left there. Did you have a question? Um, we might just take one more. Did you have a question? Okay. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I'm Eduardo Jaramillo from the China Project. And something that really jumped out to me just now, uh, this kind of small detail talking about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and cooperation on judicial matters, setting up a judicial training center, um, not something we usually or that I usually think of China as a leader on or as a shining example on the world stage. And I know this isn't really the uh, the main topic of that case study, but I thought it just jumped out to me. And I'm wondering if you can add any detail on what that looks like in practice, or maybe just comment on uh, what might be the judicial principles or lessons that China wants to share or, you know, spread across the region. Well, maybe we'll go with those two questions to start, and then we can um, take more time allows. <laughs> Um, thank, I'll just thank you for that, the, that great uh, question and also the uh, point about perhaps this is uh, you know, Xi Jinping thought being transmitted along the Belt and Road. I, yeah, it's a question that I have and I, I, we don't address it in this report per se, but in some other research that I've done, I'm trying to see whether lessons from the field kind of to the, the extent to which those may be impacting uh, China's thinking about security and development along the Belt and Road. And uh, you know, one great case study there is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, where you had uh, you know an, a, a huge amounts of Chinese investment poured into that very bold initiative to uh, transform Pakistan and stabilize it. Uh, and by 2017, 2018, it was fairly clear that things were not going well. And actually, when Xi Jinping makes the statement about the BRI as a road of peace in 2017, that's sort of at, that's a turning point as far as I can see, where feedback from BRI projects is building up and perhaps influencing 
uh, uh, Xi Jinping's uh, thinking about, and maybe China's thinking, uh, depending on on where you place decision-making in China, uh, about the Belt and Road and and how to uh, address security concerns. And so it's it's uh, with CPC you see uh, a the introduction of a new uh, a new Pakistan agency uh, to manage security along the Belt and Road and a lot more emphasis by China pressure by China on Pakistan to protect its assets along the Belt and Road. You see done a little bit of work on some other projects. You see a similar kind of pattern uh, elsewhere. So that, it, it could be that it's kind of a natural extension of domestic politics, and in fact, it is. I mean, everything that China's doing is about uh, domestic security and political sec- and economic security, but it also could be feedback as well from what's happening on the ground uh, beyond China's borders, and it doesn't surprise me that it would prioritize what's happening right along its periphery, those places to have the biggest spillover, potential spillover effects and impacts on China's own security. So uh, that's that's what I what I have. Uh, that's the comment I make as far as the the um, uh, this judicial training. I I think this is something we're going to see a lot more of, and it it reflects an emphasis um, by Xi Jinping on on lawmaking and the whole discussion about you know laws in um, in uh, authoritarian or in um, in Marxist-Leninist countries. And their their role is is a really interesting one that is a, an area of scholarship that I have not um, explored yet. But uh, I think um, uh, we will actually have a chance to learn more about this because the next phase of our project will focus on Central Asia. So stay tuned. Did we have any online questions? Do you want to get online questions? Okay. Bates, did you want to? Um, sure. I'll just touch. Briefly, on the International Organization for Mediation, I think that, um, yeah, I think you know as much as we do at the moment. I think that they they had opened up the preparatory office in Hong Kong just in February, and I think sort of limited has come out of it, sort of just sort of uh, promoting it as a, the first intergovernmental legal organization dedicated to resolving international disputes through mediation. Um, so it seems like it will be more structured, and I think it has an interesting list of signatories to the joint statement, including Algeria, Belarus, Cambodia, Djibouti, Indonesia, Laos, Pakistan, Serbia, and Sudan. Um, so, <laughs> but we haven't necessarily seen it put into practice yet. And so, what that means on the ground, I think, is also something that we'll be looking at for the next stages of our research. I'll just say that, you know, uh, broaden out uh, from your question about the relationship between domestic and the foreign. Um, it, it's not only at this operational level of trying to, you know, really strengthen um, state capacity on the left side of the conflict curve. Um, it's also about spreading the normative um, understanding that state centricity and, and, and absolute sovereignty uh, is okay uh, and, and, and should be acceptable. And in fact, not only acceptable, but applauded and appreciated because that is what ultimately will, in this, this is the Chinese perception or their, their, this is their principle, that is going to guarantee security more than anything else. Um, so socializing that norm is all what's going on here, um, uh, even as the operational activities are also underway. So it's very much, in my mind, a way of legitimizing uh, the internal, externally. Um, and it's being done in myriad ways, not just in, in, in relation to conflict prevention, as you well know. Um, so I, I see it in that context very much, very much so. Thank you all very much. I think we might be at time. Victor, do you have one more thing you want to say? 
May I just, I mean, I just wanted to, you, you asked a really good question at the beginning about, um, you know, basically begs the question, why is China um, seeming to be putting more emphasis on the left side of the conflict? Why is that? Given that, over the previous, say, 20 years, we've seen this enormous investment in UN peacekeeping, for example, um, which, you know, should be, I think, applauded and appreciated. Um, and I would just have two quick responses to that. One, China's hands are tied more on the right side of the conflict curve. A, you know, they, they can't just um, undertake those sort of peacekeeping um, activities uh, by itself, unilaterally. It has to do it through the UN system. Uh, and, um, and, and, and too often in China's view, um, the exercise of UN-sanctioned force has been done in a way that they don't like. Um, that, that they would claim you know, Western powers um, you know, unfairly or unjustly um, uh, convinced um, the UN to, to intercede and intervene in ways or to sanction interventions that were, in the end of the day, um, unjust in China's view. And I think the real tipping point there, obviously, uh, was in relation to the Libyan uh, intervention. Um, and so I think maybe they're walking away from that a little bit and not finding as much value in what it, what, what it wants to see done through that side of, of activity. And secondly, this is, um, you know, the right side of the, the left side of the curve is where China has a lot of strengths, right? They can deliver uh, surveillance. They can deliver police training. They can deliver um, um, normative approaches about state centricity and, and state capacity. Um, and they can do it themselves unilaterally with the people they want to rather than all the complications of dealing with the international system and the UN system and so on. So it seems somewhat contradictory because, of course, China is a major supporter of the UN uh, at, at a certain rhetorical level, but I think it's often frustrated at an operational level of what it can and cannot do. Also put a lot of resources into UN peacekeeping and got more for it. There's room for debate with those. Um, I think this would be an interesting subject to, to kind of probe a bit further what's going on with the peacekeeping side. Uh, we are at time, however, so thank you very much for that fascinating uh, set of presentations and for a great uh, report that I think will be a wonderful resource for all of us um, going forward. And thank you all very much for coming today and for those of you online for, for logging on to listen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.